Hello, guys. Ned, uh, are you are you in Germany? <laughs> yeah, I am, David. I am. But it looks like this is the first time since we've done the Tour de France pods where I've not been at home. No, well, still none of us. Are, we're not all at home. I'm the only one traveling, but Pete's at home and you're at home. And it's all quite like we haven't yet managed to do a pod where all three of us are actually at home. Which I don't know but whether that makes do, us sound it? cool. Or, yeah. No, because we're, we're traveling minstrels, aren't we? We're, or traveling Wilburys. It's kind of, we're just trying to find our way in the world and... and yeah. I feel like I'm a traveling Blackberry at the minute because <laughs> I had a Blackberry on my run in Portugal, fresh off the bush, uh, and then got nice. home and they were also very ripe at the bottom of my road. That's super interesting, Pete, because yesterday I took the boys out just for a little mountain bike ride from my house and Archie went off looking for, for blackberries in the bushes. Because he'll just eat, he'll eat the fruit off the Yeah, off it's the bushes. great. Yeah. I, I concur entirely. Is it my imagination or are they, are they a little bit earlier? Like than they usually yeah. are. They are mm. like they don't normally ripen in August, do they? That's pretty weird because of the heat and everything. I got put off them year, a few years ago because we, when my kids were little, we always used to go blackberry, blackberrying and fill punnets full of them because there's a cemetery near us where they just go wild. Um, punnets, great word. Punnets, exactly. Tupperware. But then mm. one time, and I don't know whether you've ever had an experience of this, because uh, it does happen. You get all these blackberries back and you pick them and they all look juicy and ripe and then. You get them home Sour. and you put them in a bowl. No, no, it's way, way, way worse than that. Mushy. Suddenly, no, even worse than that. Suddenly, tiny little um, fly larvae, like tiny little Ew, minute little disgusting. white worms crawl out of all of the blackberries. And it's like mm. the whole lot is infected with, but you mm. don't notice it at first. And it's only when you've taken the fruit home and that stands for a bit that they suddenly go. And it's kind of ruined. <laughs> it's kind of ruined wild blackberries for me. Well, this year on the left of our drive, we've got loads of hedges that need badly need cutting, and they haven't. Uh, and we've discovered this new blackberry bush that's came into blossom um, over over the course of a year and a half. Because I feel like they they happen like obviously very naturally, but it it wasn't it wasn't there last year. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, we have got blackberries everywhere, and it's like whoa cut your hedge and i'm like well no because i've got free food and also <laughs> going back to what you said ned about the flies yeah i was up, up there and it's the first time i've noticed it, the amount of flies and other insects just hovering around them everywhere yeah um yeah C- can i just ned can yeah. I just paint a picture of our three different locations yeah and because pete it's so nice to see you back at home for yep. the first time probably in two months but immediately when you get home you, I'm a little bit scared of you because you look super cool. Yeah, you got like you got your your actual proper headphones on. You got your oversized hoodie, your cap. You're in your DJ suite. Keyboards around you. There's the whole layout. <laughs> there's the desks, and it's like Pete. Pete's back in his natural habitat, <laughs> <laughs> looking good. Pete, I have yeah. to say, Ned, uh, aloft. It's one of them. Aloft. It's it's a, it's absolutely. I was just looking at my own background on the thing. And it's classic Airbnb, isn't it? It's what it's what you always get when you go into an Airbnb accommodation. It's always Alex windows. It's always the apartment at the top, um, in the loft, isn't it, with the dormer windows. So behind yeah. me, and you made a really good observation, David. Behind me, there's a kind of IKEA sink, like almost yeah. the lowest spec. I've retreated to the little kitchenette bit because Kath is next door. She's just come back from swimming, and there's always just one perfectly look. Washing up liquid. <laughs> no, perfectly laid out, unused J cloth like that, and yeah. a, and one 
you know, kind of like bottle of washing up liquid that's never going to get used yeah. right next to it like that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm in an Airbnb. I'm in Germany. We'll come on to that. We'll come on to that, I'm it's sure. It's the closest we get to home, the three of us. And I think uh, your journey home, and we've spoken about it the last couple of weeks since we left the Tour de France, is you've been on a, a, a schlep, Pete. Been on a pilgrimage. <laughs> yeah. The amount of highs and lows and different experiences and different people I've met over the last eight weeks has been quite something else, to be honest. Um, and quite a few times I've crossed over the, the pilgrimage that goes to um, Santiago de Compostela, which has also been quite quite funny on my drives, you know. Thank God I wasn't walking. But on my drives. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I really have, and I've been adjusting to being back home the last couple of days which is strange a strange thing to say but um i really got institutionalized to life on the road and then in the last two to three weeks life in a car um really bizarre never thought i'd say those words but i have and it happens well well at that point at that point i think it's worth because i've got a few more questions about your journey that i'd love you to answer but at that point let's just hear because you sent our whatsapp group an amazing clip of um uh, it was basically you had that obviously the phone on hands free and you were recording us a little message just to give us an update on where you were because there had been some talk this is after you left portugal and were heading across spain in towards france because you had an important thing to do in france which we'll come to but you sent us a you sent us a little update um which started with um the, answering the question as to whether or not you decided to stay the night in Biarritz. And uh, and and then it went from there. But it is basically a beautiful audio encapsulation of what these journeys are like, especially when you're on your own um, with all your thoughts just madly bouncing around inside your head as you race up and down the motorway. So let's have a listen, little listen to that. Uh, I'm not staying in Barrett's Bear it, because it's too expensive, basically. <laughs> I'm going, I don't know, to some... Oh, I, I, actually, do you know where I'm staying? Um, I think it's south of Bordeaux in uh, a B&B hotel. It's like 100 euro a night, maybe a bit less. So, then I'll have three hours left to, to the start of Lavinia tomorrow. First job to do some interview with GCN. Don't know what about. Um, and I've got a, a boot full of disc wheels to give to riders. So yeah, got about two hours left to go, stuck in a traffic jam. And like, about four hours ago, I was like so tired. I felt like, Joe, when you're out, you cross-eyed. And, um, and then came around a bit the last hour, switched the music up a bit. A bit more upbeat, tempo. Uh, what else is going on? Not much, not much. Yeah, there we have it. That I've had Haribo, um, a big monster energy drink, uh, double espresso cold coffee, an actual double espresso, uh, Red Bull. I stopped in Burgos and bought myself a baguette, pesto and mozzarella and made a pesto mozzarella baguette um, in my car basically. Like got 
rid of the mozzarella juice out the out the door, obviously on the floor, and then made the baguette. It was quite nice. And that's all I've eaten. Mainly caffeine, but it's not really touching the sides, to be honest. Pete, I've got this. I've got this fantastic image of you with the car door open, like in those little bags of mozzarella, um, and you've just kind of you've. Do you know we had that conversation the other in the other podcast about the sh- um, the sachets of shower gel that you have to rip open with yeah. your so you, similar. You, you've presumably you've got no cutlery, so you've got to kind of. No. So that's it. So you've got to nick the bag of mozzarella mm-hmm. and then empty the juice out the side. Is that what happened? That's exactly what happened. <laughs> I love it. It was it was honestly just pure, just filth. But by that point, like you're saying, at the hours on your own, you just don't care. You don't care about anything. Yeah. Mm. And I had the conversation with my wife. I was like, because I had a Burger King the day before because they do really good vegetable burgers. And I was like, I'm just going to get a Burger King. And I was like, actually, no, I'm not. I'm going to walk around the supermarket and just, just see if there's anything else I can have before I have my second Burger King. And yeah, obviously come out with, mozzarella pesto and a baguette which is a go-to option as you both know from spending three weeks with me in france (laughs) (laughs) and then i just flung the car door open and sat there and bent over like you're saying i teared the mozzarella open (laughs) flopped it on the floor like the water and uh and then i just no first i actually actually no first i spreaded so I cut the end of the baguette off and used it as like a fork or <laughs> utensil to get the pesto <laughs> to get the pesto out of the pesto pot and spread it as like butter on the baguette. Yeah. Then then came the mozzarella incident. Yeah, did not care. It was like being in the middle of um Cheshire Oaks or something, you know what I yeah. mean? Because it was like in Burgos, this big shop like, and Are you Pete Kenya? Um, Do you win the gold medal? <laughs> yeah. No, it's not me, no. I don't know who it is. <laughs> I love it. I love uh, it. I love it when you have to imp- use food to improvise. You improvise cutlery with food to yeah. get at food. So it's like food it's cannibalizing it. itself like that. It's absolutely yeah. brilliant. I can totally see that. I kind of like, it wouldn't be so much a fork as a spork, wouldn't it? Like the end mm. of a baguette. Yeah. So, really <laughs> yeah. so yeah. I've spoken to a couple of kind of adventurers and they say there's no reason for a spork because a spoon can do everything. You, you're going to carry a knife. Because if you're an adventurer, you have a knife. Then you just need a spoon. You don't need a spork. Why would you have a spork? I, I would agree, unless you're eating in a fancy restaurant, like meat where you want to put yeah. your fork in and pick mm. it up. Yeah. But I guess they're not doing that on, you know, fancy adventures, aren't they? So. But I think these are the things you end up thinking about a lot in a, in a drive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But listen, Pete, but Pete, you got to France, right? And then you were asked, you've been asked to attend the Tour de l'Avenir. What happened? Because you sent us lots of pictures of that the Tour de l'Avenir started in La Roche-sur-Yonne, didn't it? Mm, yeah. You sent us a load of pictures, Place but we don't really know what happened. Fondue. You didn't really fill us in on the details of what, what you had to do. Um, so I arrived there, honestly, this the, the two days I, I was there, well, a bit of a blur after the drive. Um, it's well the three days in total, even arriving in London and catching up with David's sister and Andrew McQuaid, <laughs> which is another like why did that happen? I don't know, <laughs> but it just rounded the chill. So I arrived in this in this small town and it was great. It was I was lost about you and David in France. It was I felt right, I felt wrong. Uh, it was all going on, but anyway, bottom of the, bottom of the 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 whole point of the story is black sheep cycling are making the. Uh, leaders jerseys for the Tour de l'Avenir this year who I'm working for and with 
Um, so they're providing uh, the jerseys and I was there doing bits why. for their social media page um, and just supporting them. So, I've, I mean, in terms of our beliefs, we're very in line with each other. They do a lot around mental health and push that forward yeah. a lot. So, um, yeah, it feels like a real natural sort of brand to work with. And uh, You it, know yeah, who I bumped into, Pete? Literally, mm-hmm. this is sound of Nick Howe. On the way out, oh, who was a former go. creative director of Black Sheep. Yeah, he was like my first point yeah. of contact. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. That, but with that, we had we went to the hotel um, and we hotel of the riders because they were all there was like seven teams yeah. in this one hotel. Caught up with um, basically everyone, and it was it was really cool. And then as I left, I was like, I actually feel like I want to just because we caught up with John Herity as well. And oh, it was like, so bizarre not yeah. sitting in the team car and like being a part of the race, and I just had to leave. And mm. hopefully my wife doesn't listen to this podcast because she'd be like, um, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> you know <what> I mean? yeah. <laughs> Guys, should we go back to the racing? So, Well, can so I just yeah. ask, before we do that, can, well, before we leave alone the subject of the Tour de l'Avenir, can I just ask about, because that's also a race that needs updating, but uh, your, your, mm. both your experiences of the Tour de l'Avenir and where, where does it fit in, in terms of its importance, its significance? Was it, did it used to be a better and bigger gauge of who would go on to thrive at the very highest level? Or has it always been roughly as it is now? Or kind of like, you know, David, maybe you've got a better sense of kind of where, how it's changed down the decades. So Tour de l'Avenir, which is Avenir, means future. Tour de l'Avenir, it's Tour of the Future. It was created, I think, probably about 30 years ago, uh, 30, 40 years ago by ASO, who have always owned the Tour de France because they could see that the young riders weren't getting a chance to to perform. Um, and you had the amateur ranks, you had the professional ranks, and they wanted to create a race that allowed amateurs. And the year of your 25th birthday is the year you become pro, kind of in the old old school days. And so they wanted to create a race, and that's where the white jersey exists in the Tour de France because it was for give those riders a chance because it took them so long to get good. Um, and so they thought, oh, well, why don't we just create another stage race that's just for them? And that was the Tour de l'Avenir. And it was very much a charity project um, by ASO to do it. And it became a rite of passage for all professional cyclists. If you wanted to... W- win the Tour de France, you go to Tour de l'Avenir, because they would do, it was basically, it, it's the same setup as the Criterium de Dauphiné. Uh, it's, a, it's seven, eight days long, but it would always be, um, generally in the old days, Brittany and West Coast, Vendée. Uh, oh, really? Brittany. Really? Yeah. Okay, yeah. didn't it know that. It was kept right. in the West Coast. Yeah. And then only later, it kind of moved to the mountains, because they figured you didn't need that. So here's a, here's a great kind of one, when uh, Greg LeMond finished second in the UCI Road World Championships in 1981, I think. he f- That was the end of August. He then, a week later, went to Tour de l'Avenir and won it. Okay. So Tour de l'Avenir was recognized as being, it was a gateway. If you performed Tour de l'Avenir, you were going to be one of the best riders. Uh, and it was the Tour of the Future. And you'd have Christian Proudhon would be there or Jean-Marie Leblanc, they would actually take the, the director of the Tour de France would actually be there. They replicated all that stuff there. So it felt for these young riders like you were doing a mini Tour de France. And But it's not like that anymore. Uh, it's because the whole sport's changed. But it was originally created 
to to help young riders uh, get a foot up and have hope. Yeah. P. Yeah, I mean to for, to all, I don't know to to say that it's not like that anymore. The only contradiction I have is after, when I spoke to the riders, the first comparison I had with the Tour de France is which you don't get of any other under twenty three race on the calendar is oh we just need to make it through the first few stages unscathed. This is the GC riders. And I was like, wow, like I've never heard an under 23 rider really yeah. explain or talk about a stage race like that. Because um, all the mountain days are in the last three days. I think, do, I, do you want to know, this is actually, a, I, haven't, I don't think anybody knows this story. So in, um, in my, during my ban, uh, when I was banned from cycling 2004, 2006, I approached uh, kind of Jean-Marie Leblanc, who was the director of the Tour de France. And I'd left a message with his secretary and uh, and he didn't get back to me until a week later. And he called me back and he said, Oh, David, do you say who je suis? And he was in um, the village where I'd won the prologue of the Tour de l'Avenir in 1997. And it was the loveliest thing because he was walking around that same little Poulinek, I think it was. And he said, Ah, David, ça fait plaisir de que vous m'avez appelé. Il n'y a pas de problème, mais devenez où je suis. And I was like, Are you serious? He was like, I remember when you came here. And then I'm going to English now, but in French, he was like, I remember when you turned up here. And it was such a joy to watch you race. And of course, I'll meet with you. And then he organized a meeting where I then flew across in the middle of my ban to Paris and to ASO headquarters and went to Jean-Marie Blanc's office and sat in his office and then he took me out for lunch and he was so gracious and lovely with me and said, of course, we'll let you back into the race. And yeah. Wow. Yeah. What, oh, wow. what was the lunch wow. like? What Where did he take you for lunch? That's a cool story. Wow. Oh, so he yeah. took me to a local sports stadium in um, uh, <laughs> just next to where they were. And they had uh, all these photo photos and there was a was picture it? of me in oh, a no, kilt. Oh, it wasn't say it. Yeah, it wasn't. They, they had like, this big picture of me in a kilt uh, with really? a bike that was taken by yeah yeah and it was like they had one of my bikes there it was nuts oh very yeah. cool yeah and very cool yeah, everyone so was very this kind is, this and it was his birthday mad. and it was his birthday Pete this is this is also got to remember this one so I was there and then I sat there and we had lunch He's, he dedicated it all morning and afternoon to me and he ordered champagne at lunch and uh, everyone was very kind and everyone was like Monsieur Mila Monsieur Mila uh <laughs> and <laughs> it was crazy. And then so, he oh had a, a phone call from a friend, and he said, "Are you coming?" And he's like, "No, je vais passer. Je vais faire encore une heure." And it ended up it was his 60th birthday, and no he decided way. to spend the afternoon with me. Oh my! That was Jean Marie Leblanc, and uh, so Jean Marie Leblanc spent his after his 60th birthday wow. with me, kind of me trying to beg my way back into Tour de France in the middle of That's my band. Yeah, that's like a, a, a yeah. massively hidden gem of a story, isn't it? Yeah, and it's beautiful. What I, this is what yeah. makes, but my blows my mind about like when we get together sometimes that she, with the stuff we still don't know. Kathy, you know, it's like I'm driving back from France to work for. Sorry, Ned, go on. No, no, no oh. I was just going to say before before I forget, actually, like Kathy Lamond um, told because you mentioned Greg earlier, and I was kind of like slightly mm. remembering Kathy Lamond told me. Um, that when Greg LeMond had that terrible accident, the shooting accident, you know, that nearly cost him his life and he was fighting for his yeah. life in hospital, one journalist was sent over from L'Equipe in, in Paris 
and it was Jean, and it's Jean Marie Leblanc, and I can't remember which mm. which hospital or which, which city in um, in America mm. Greg was in, but he was there for a long time, and Jean Marie Leblanc was basically doorstepping the hospital day after day after day, and that's how Jean Marie and, and Kathy kind of got to know one another. They already knew one another a little, mm. but they became very bonded over that experience because Jean Marie Leblanc was both tenacious but also respectful of the family and got to know them and everything. And mm. uh, you know that that yeah. then Jean Marie Leblanc's kind of first Tour de France was the '89 yeah. Tour de France, obviously. So. Yeah, I'd love to see him you know, again. What does he do these days? Yeah. I mean, have you got I think any he idea? just retired. He just retired gracefully and disappeared. It's amazing that we uh, haven't seen a, him, right? He just like vanished yeah, from the scene. Yeah. I think he may have come back yeah. one more time because 2007, yeah. I think, was the handover year, wasn't it? Mm. And mm. am I right? In 2008 onwards, yeah. I think it was the Prudhomme show. I think. Yeah, they did like a two or three year transition. Two or three year, maybe. And yeah. then he just and then he yeah. just went. Yeah. But it's but he was amazing. And yeah, it was. Pete, you'd have, you'd have, you'd love Jean-Louis Blanc. He'd love you. It's kind of he <laughs> yeah. just he just saw pro cycling as being these bunch of interesting characters that he had to look after and corral and do these different things with. It wasn't business. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I love these uh, stories. Yeah. So but good. you know, yeah. when when it, when the time comes and it may be that it may literally be twenty years from now. I mean, it could possibly be twenty years from now that Christian Prudhomme eventually stops being the director of the Tour de France. Mm. I think we'll we'll look back on the Prudhomme years and go, what a character! Mm. I mean, what oh, an immense Christian character! Is. He's amazing, you know. Yeah, he so, is. These it's guys, a, yeah. Um, yeah. Germany. Well, no, no, race. Should we do talk bike bike racing? Should we talk bike racing? That's what I mean. Bike racing. Mm. Okay. Well, yeah. talk about the Tour of Germany. Well, I can talk about the Vuelta first, actually. If Let's you talk like. about the Vuelta. I think it's probably foremost in people's minds. Given that yeah. it's the, the you know the big race that's on at the moment, I've had because I've been traveling so much, I've barely seen any of it. It started in mm. Utrecht, so this is I think the first year in history. I didn't know that. Well, you, yes, Until you did. Oh, you found out morning. just the day before or something, didn't you? With your yeah. usual attention, yeah. acribic attention to detail in the cycling scene. Um, but this is obviously the first year in history that all three Grand Tours have had a foreign Grand Depart, and they've all started on a Friday because there's been a transfer. Mm thereafter so that's an interesting little side note um so utrecht hosted um a team time trial and it's like i don't know how you guys felt but i when i read that and i, I didn't i wasn't able to get in front of a tv and actually watch it on friday night um but i thought don't know oh, why ned because I, I was traveling but i thought oh yeah <laughs> team time trials they used to exist like yeah it's so rare mm. now isn't it so strange to see i mean i didn't watch yeah. it but did, I, did either of you manage to watch it? No. no. But okay. I did watch after something. Um, <laughs> Never strays far, really. Uh, Ned and I used to get... For, we've done it for uh, five David, years. this is not a segue to go to your amazing team time trial you did on Garmin back in the day. Oh, no. go on. Go on. No, definitely not. No, no, I'm not doing any team time trials. You can I've do, already, though, if you want. I've, I've used up my anecdote today. My anecdote's done. Um, but what I was very surprised... You are so cruel. You're so, but, you're so cruel and you're also so sharp because you know that that's a possibility and you're just going to get in there with a little oh, no. dig just I could, I could have done I could have done Vuelta team time trials don't worry about it I've got anecdotes coming out me Whoa. everywhere but <laughs> oh um, yeah when the last when was the last team time trial in the world started there was that mad one wasn't there started. the mad one Pete were you in that was mad one in, one in Benidorm where you raced all over like like the beachfront and it was all kind of like footpaths and things like that do you remember that were you I in that remember. 
No, I wasn't in that. Oh. I must have been in the, in the, one. the, oh, the That's, that's when you got Team Sky when you had um, Lander who you thought you were, was going to win it and they all kind of didn't do very well no, in the team time f- trial. Oh, that was that year. And oh, there's also yeah. another year when yeah. it was like at midnight, wasn't it? Or two. But anyway, was, getting, yeah. we're going so down. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but, but uh, be telling a story about. So <laughs> I was surprised that Hessink, Hessink <laughs> yeah. got, got given the red jersey. And I have to say. I like what they've done with the red jersey. Okay. It's the little kind of diamonds all over it. What have they done with it? It's got diamonds all they've over kind it. Of, it's kind of like got a pattern to it. They oh. give it a pulse. <laughs> it doesn't look terrible. Right. It doesn't look terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm all in for it. But Paul then, uh, so what happened was Jumbo Visma won the team time trial. Very good. That's nice. And then... <laughs> uh, that was Friday. Then Saturday and Sunday, sprint stages. And I watched both of them. Sam Bennett dominated them, and I messaged you guys last night because I wasn't paying close attention. Who was his lead out man? Because yep. he was delivered perfectly. Yeah, and it was awesome both times. Yeah, and he wasn't it wasn't dominating wins by him, but they were wins. And now Sam Bennett's back. He's back on so, the upward trajectory. So his yeah. lead out man is is Danny Van Poppel. Right, formerly of of Team Sky, I think he won a couple of stages, didn't he, when he was at Sky at the at the Vuelta, right, in his own right. Well, I can't remember, was he at Sky then? So everyone starts. Everyone starts. Um, Vuelta. But but I, you know, I kind of aside from that, I've always considered him to be a, a kind of like very strong, very dependable, not necessarily kind of like the fastest, but like just one of those strong riders in the in the group. But I, I've i never met the guy and I don't know too much of the fine detail apart from his, obviously his family heritage, which is immense. Um, but then I was commentating with you, Pete, at the UAE tour. And because I think you must have been teammates, right? Mm. Then you obviously know the guy, sort of obviously, much better than me. And when we saw him doing a, a, an absolutely incredible job, a la Vuelta, for Sam Bennett when he was flying at the UAE tour earlier on this year. Pete, you weren't surprised particularly. And I was no. but I was blown away by I, I kind of saw a, a completely different rider in Danny Van Poppel. I didn't realise he was that good a lead out rider. But you yeah. you obviously kind of I like mean, saw qualities in him long time ago that, that, that were hidden to me, perhaps. I'm pretty sure he was doing what he's doing for Sam Bennett as well as his own opportunities when he was at Team Sky, but for Elio Viviani, maybe. But I shared a room with him in Tour of California 2015 or 14. And um, he was like, yeah, I don't think Sky are going to re-sign me next year. And I was like, oh, mm. hard luck. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's one of those awkward conversations you have and it's like, well, what do you do now? Or what other teams yeah. have you got? And he's like, oh, I've got this, I've got that. And it happens quite a bit throughout your career. And it's just like, it's it's annoying because I think he was like really happy at the team. Yeah. But um, I, yeah, like you say, Ned, I could exactly see what he was capable of, um, mm-hmm. what he was doing for Viviani, what he'd done for himself. And uh, it was, uh, now he's so, showing it. It's, all yeah. this time yeah, later, he's just doing doing the same yeah. thing, if not better. Pete, you loved it watching him kind of, I didn't know, didn't kind of count on Sam Bennett's first stage win and I might be wrong on stage two where where he won but stage three you could see Sam Bennett literally waited for his lead out man mm-hmm. it was yeah. like pure and it was like it was so cool and that's why the first message I sent to you guys was who's leading him out because mm-hmm. that was insane how good that was yeah because so, Colton Kirby was commentating he was like who's gonna win and you could only see the guys mm. 
on in his picture and i said to mm. myself sam, I, I didn't say to myself i said sam bennett because the camera had stayed yeah. on the on the group of sprinters and he'd gone mm. to the complete opposite side of the road mm. just before the camera so then it you know so then he was he was completely uh, out of the picture i was watching the same thing Pete. and there yeah. there he was and i was like you just as soon as danny van popper went with him on on his wheel and like you say david it's just complete 100 percent trust and he was you have that moment, don't you? I think, as a sprinter, because I'm not one, mm. um, where you you can oversee what's happening with three, four hundred meters to go, maybe five hundred meters to go, and it's like, okay, do I trust my lead up man, or mm. is there a be- is there a better option for me? Because you see it, mm. you see it quite, happens quite often, doesn't it? Where sprinters mm. make those judgment calls within the last five hundred meters, where they're like, actually, this is better today. But Pete, but that's the, exactly the it. It's like the fact he was out of shot. It's, yeah, that's the confidence. So that, like, hearing you guys describe uh, the way that played out just straight away put me in mind of another race that I did actually watch, which was the Cycle Classics or whatever it's called, the Fattenfall Classic in Hamburg. I forget what I forget what the name of the one-day race is now, but it's a World Tour race. And it came down to a group of um, five riders who chinned off the, the front and were, were contesting the, f- the final. And Bora Hansgrohe had two. Um, they had Patrick Conrad, who's a climber, and they had... Um, they had Marco Haller, but they also had in that group of five riders, Wout van Aert, right? So I was oh, actually, I was watching pleasure. German commentary and it was all about van Aert is in the perfect place here. I mean, van Aert. Can, who wouldn't? He can, van, exactly, who wouldn't? Van Aert, he can only win yeah. from this. But in the final kilometer, Patrick Conrad is just on the front and he's drilling it and he's drilling it and he's drilling it. And it takes it to about 250 meters where, and Marco Haller, his teammate, is sitting on van Aert's wheel and at 250 meters on the finish, the, the road just bends right, just slightly around to the left, enough to kind of fool Wout Van Aert. Van Aert sees that Conrad is about to pull off the front and looks to his left, thinking Haller's going to try and sprint on the inside line. And Haller just went on the outside earlier than Van Aert. And he'd already got uh. the jump on him. And he was kind of three, four seconds into his sprint. Now, maybe that's an exaggeration. One or two seconds into his sprint, but enough before Van Aert flicked his head over to the right and realized that he'd lost the race and that Haller had outthought him, outsmarted him and ultimately outsprinted him. And it was an absolute, it was a brilliant ride. I think, I don't think also, that's also to put in perspective that, was that Wout Van Aert's first race back? Oh, yeah, possibly, possibly, possibly. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I think it's also with Wout Van Aert, I mean, I'm the same same as you regards that. And I also think they need to take those opportunities because he's so amazing. And he probably was a little bit tired and kind yeah, of just... A- absolutely. But he was close. But well, I think the point was, the point was, Marco Haller is not going to beat Wout Van Aert very often in his career, mm. right? In fact, mm. you know, however often they've sprinted against one another, let's say it's 50 times, yeah. I would imagine it's probably mm. prior to today, 49 nil for Wout Van Aert, you know? Yeah. But 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 this opportunity presented itself. One, Van Aert might be tired and rusty, um, and two, mm. think about how the team, you know, kind of played their played their hands and took their chances there. Mm. And it was just great to watch because it was, you know, and Marco Haller himself was incredibly emotional a, a, mm. about it. And it kind of yeah, it was, it was just a good moment. I thought it was a good moment. It's quite a, it's a fun race that as well. Underrated. Can we do a little segue now, Ned, to the yeah. sense that you're. You're there commentating on the the Tour of Germany. Yeah. Which is a race we... Uh, it had its 
it's quite a weird, it's a bit of a Tour of Britain race, isn't it? Yeah. In the sense that it comes and goes yeah. as these moments. And uh, you're now, uh, your commentary is available on GCN. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I, th- I think it will be. It ha- the race hasn't started yet, David. We're two days away from the race okay. starting. I'm just here. I'm just so here far. on a. I'm just here on a holiday um, because I love yeah. Germany. So I've come a few days early um, to enjoy myself. But yeah, we can we can talk. We'll, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Pete. Just disappeared for a bit. He's back. Mm, but as he, as he disappeared, he just stepped away from the camera to reveal a framed yellow jersey from the Dauphiné which is pretty cool I saw that as well yeah, that's, that's pretty cool that's the that's the first oh. Tour de France um, we won that's Froome's oh, jersey oh is it but it's got that's, the, uh, that's, that's Chris the that's Bradley's the whole the, no that's Chris's that I won Chris's. sorry with, it, with the team not the, that the, the team won uh, um, nice. so that's okay. Chris's and then behind that one is and you can't see it because it's got another it's very me this this war but there's another story behind that because we started doing Zoom calls, didn't we, like three years ago when no one could leave the house. So I thought, I've got to make myself look <laughs> professional. It's like, rate my room. <laughs> it's like, oh, I obviously... Do you follow that account, I rate my room? Read, do you know what I mean? This is how intellectual I am. Like, I'm not yeah. going to put a bookshelf behind me because, do you know, <laughs> come on. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, this is what uh, I did, but I don't read. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had, the, I had this moment actually when we were... Um, uh, on holiday the last couple of weeks and we were staying in this lovely house and there's a games room in there and the owner had all these football jerseys that uh, were all original national champion winning jerseys and put with all the the um, where the national team had won World Cups. I don't understand. It was amazing. Say that again. Maybe it was just the Zoom so call So you were in a games room and it was yeah. um, all the World Cups won over the last 40 years. Yeah. There were, was a football jersey on the wall for each one of those national teams. Okay, got you. Yeah. And it was just there. And then it put their, the, all of their results underneath it. Wow. Of that team. Yeah. So Brazil, Argentina, France. And it was, and all kind of really cool original jerseys. And you thought, oh, that's so lovely. Mm. You went in there. It's like the Heineken Museum and in I, Amsterdam. Very much. It was that kind of idea. And for the first time, because I'm probably like Pete in the sense that because we're still in that post-traumatic stress phase of our lives regards our racing career, I'd like to probably, I'm 45, when I'm 55, is be able to have my jerseys on a wall framed nicely of the results. At the moment, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready to have my my career on a wall because that feels like a, I'm dead. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> that's a very kind of that's a very kind of like kind of honest thing i'm not gonna i genuinely do not want to have my career on my wall so i'm like that's not i got i got more stuff to do mm. but then i'm getting older now and i'm like actually i should be really proud of that that was really cool i should put all those up on a wall yeah. and put all my jerseys up everywhere and be really proud of it the you problem is oh, david I, the problem is the problem is spacing i think because you yeah know, like i, I don't agree. know how you do that especially while you're it's a big wall yeah I, I remember going to um when i'm when i made a documentary with steven gerrard in 2006 yeah filming filming with him in his trophy cabinet in at the top of his mansion in Forby in Formby you know the centerpiece <laughs> so of, his, of his trophy cabinet he had the European Cup or a replica of the European Cup just spinning around like that you know with lights and he had he had his, his neon jersey. lasers it was, uh, oh, it was absolutely amazing but he had 
But he had like empty, he also had empty shelving for the future. <laughs> you know? That's, he, that's deep. But he also had like, he also had, he also had like um, kind of retrofilled it right back to his junior kind of like, so his earliest little trophies that he'd won as a kid, but they were all there, you know, absolutely everything. It was amazing. It was amazing. So yeah, I don't know about that. He's a weapon, but isn't he? Stephen Gerrard. Did he see I the l- rules that I are thought sent he through was the fines? I thought he was such an interesting guy and I was fortunate enough to make that documentary at the when he was absolutely at the height of his powers. So we, Zenith. we were with him, you know, for an entire calendar year, filming behind the scenes in his house and kind of we were with him from two thousand and five to two thousand and six. Two thousand and five he won he won single handedly kind of the European Cup in Istanbul mm. for Liverpool. Two thousand and six, a year later, he kind of single handedly won the FA Cup for Liverpool. You know, and he was he was the best. Mm. Uh, he was the, at that time he was the best midfielder in the world. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it, it I, I always liked Stephen Gerrard because he seemed like such a kind of and I, you guys know more about football than I do, but a kind of Cantona figure where it was just operations, mm. just get it done. There was no elegance to it. It was just like he was just humble, wasn't he? He didn't. Yeah, and he didn't look kind of. He wasn't balletic. No, you know, a lot of no, not in the slightest. But when he cut through a ball. And, and, when he struck the ball, he did Oof, straight it was through. Like, bam, and then you just yeah. like seeing it at the top corner. Joe, yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, just like look at those. Through. I mean, let, let's. We probably need to knock the football discussion on the head fairly <laughs> yeah. soon, yeah. otherwise we're going to be losing. We're going to be losing subscribers. Yeah. Very Next quickly. up, Everton. Wrexham <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh, the city, the city we'll Newcastle game this weekend was crazy, wasn't it, Ned? <laughs> Um, but uh, but yeah yeah go on to YouTube. Oh, so go actually, on, yeah. you know what I can do a, a very good one here is on. um, so Todd Pickcock is on his way to winning every serious uh, continental, national championship, world championship, and every discipline by winning the European Mountain Bike Championships. Ah, uh, and he, uh, that was a bit of a comeback weekend. story as well, wasn't it? Again, a race yeah. I didn't see, but didn't he, he, he crashed in the first corner? Crashed in the first and corner, and then just and then just came back and then just made a mockery of it. Went out four laps in the end. I think there were like 10, 12 laps and just, I mean, genuinely. And then I read some of the stuff afterwards about him and he said there's still two more world championships to go. So he's genuinely thinking mm. about winning. That was a European mountain bike championship. Mm-hmm. So next week or in two weeks is the mountain bike world championships. Then after Which that, there's win. the road world championships. Which is that the only world championship then win. that he wouldn't have, well... Well, because he's now got he's now got Olympic gold medal, Olympic gold medalist, Olympic champion in mountain bike. Then won cyclocross world championships, Alpe d'Huez Queen stage road yeah. race, effectively yeah. a world championships, but not the rainbow jersey. <laughs> Comes out of it, European mountain bike championships. Uh, going to mountain bike world championships, probably win that. <laughs> Can line up uh, for at the start line of the UCI Road World Championships and be a legitimate contender he will mm. be. to do that. Mm. And it's like, are you serious? Mm. That then makes a mockery of Tadej Pogacar. Well, if Tom what? Pickock... Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. <laughs> mm. I just say as a, pure, as a pure, beautiful yeah. athlete, yeah. I'm like, I'm all in on Tom Pickock. <laughs> if he can pull <laughs> off those... Pill- Although, do you, see, if- do you see on his Instagram stories, he's actually like pitching Pitters now. Who is? He did it yesterday. Do you see that, Pete? No, I've been on Instagram. Yeah, well, on Instagram. He was like literally, he was putting pitters all over his Instagram yesterday. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Doing yeah. what? what yeah. Why? Yeah. 
on well, story. It just like it was just like graphic pitters, 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 yeah, pitters, pitters, pitters. Yeah, we yeah, should have we should have trademarked it. Um, You're welcome. The Euros is so, a sports day now as well, isn't it? With all the the events together, a bit like the yeah, comic game. True. Yeah, Pettis yeah. is good. You need you need a good like a little nickname. What yeah. you know, transcend. <laughs> he got stung by a bee, didn't he? Did you see that? I saw that. Yeah, in his, in practice, fa- his face all swelled up. It's quite funny. Bless him. Yeah. Very good. But yeah. I like that he just posts a picture of himself all swollen up, like he'd been punched in the face repeatedly. It's very good. But I mean, still just went and won. That ha- that happened in the morning practice. Did it? And then, yeah, it's a bit like the triathletes, yeah. isn't it? Who gets stung by um, jellyfish <laughs> at the Kona. Iron Man will champion. Yeah. Oh my god, I got stoned by a jellyfish. Then I had to swim four point whatever K and ride 190 miles and then run a marathon. This is a real sport. Uh. Yeah, but what happens? What, what uh. where, you know? What happens after Kona? Yeah. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> we all love it. Yeah. Um, oh my god. Back to um, I suppose. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. So yeah, Deutschland tour. Deutschland tour. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's... What's Do you want to give a brief history of the Deutschland tour? No, because no. off so the top of my head, I can't. Because it's, like you say, it's come and gone and it keeps changing incarnation. So it's stopped and started down the years. They've only... In, in It's actually quite an old race. I think the first one was raced in 1911. But I think there have only been something like 35 editions. <laughs> so, like, yeah. it's had a really stuttering history. Um, yeah. In its current in- incarnation, it's owned by ASO. Right, so ASO own the Deutschland Tour, which, which oh, well, in itself is kind of mind blowing. And yeah. they they obviously you know see the potential for Germany one day mm. to wake up and love road racing. Obviously, in the in the Jan Ulrich era, as briefly as that was, you know it kind of like came and went very fast. Um, but the Deutschland Tour this year, uh, so I was on it last year, and it was four, and, and the year before it was four stages long. It's now stretched to five stages. Um, and for the first time in its history, stage three, so essentially the fourth stage after, because there's a prologue, um, is a summit finish. And this is the first summit finish in in the, the recent, in the modern history of the, the Deutschland Tour. Um, and of course, Germany has got significant climbs, right? So this isn't a, a Tour of Britain summit finish. This is a 12 or 13 kilometer summit finish, like for real. Um, and I think that fact has caught a lot of the teams on the hop in terms of their selections. So I've been looking at the emerging start list, which which keeps chopping and changing. I mean, the riders are only just beginning to turn up here in Weimar. And I think suddenly riders like, for example, Luke Rowe, he's been swapped out. Adam Yates has suddenly appeared, you know, as, as, as the teams go, oh, oh, hang on, maybe this is a... You know, maybe this is a, a race that we need to pay a bit of attention to and there's a bit of a chance here to take a GC. So, for example, Roman Bardet is going to be riding for for DSM. Adam Yates, as I say, has, has popped up. Simon Geschke has appeared, you know, riding for the German team. So it's suddenly become a bit of a... It's quite nicely balanced, actually, because there's some really world-class sprinters here as well. Fabio Jakobsen has opted to race here because he's going to have his opportunities. Um, and, and then there's a, yeah, there's a GC up for grabs for the climbers as well. So it's, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It starts with a 2.7 kilometer time trial. Ooh, and really technical. It's, it's in the that's center. Like of, that's like, Pete, that's like a tour of Romandy prologue. Yeah, they were great, weren't they? Is it technical? Cobblestones, up and down. C- cobblestones, I'm not sure about up and down, but definitely cobblestones. Past the Lamborghini, it goes, Lamborghini garage. It goes right the way through. It just snakes its way through <laughs> the center of, of Weimar, which is where I am now. Which is, I mean, mm. 
this is this part of Germany I'd never visited before sort of last year. It's absolutely blown me away. It's incredible. Is this where the, the, the pointers, the Weimaraner dogs, come from? I guess so. I mean, in the grand scheme yeah. of things, I'm relegating that fact, David, as floating as it may be, to mm. relatively unimportant, I have to say, because with respect to yeah. dogs, and you know I have an ambivalent relationship with dogs at best, mm. Um, mm. Weimar stands alone for its place in history uh, for various different reasons. But as a brand, they've got a great dog. They they may have a great dog, but they can't. They're the grey dogs with the bright blue eyes. Is that what they are? They're pointers. Yeah, beautiful dogs. Long haired or short? Are they long haired or short? Short. Thousand years of breeding. Oh, thousand yeah. years of mm. thousand years of breeding. Are they aggressive? Would you say? No, they're super friendly. Super they're chilled. very needy. Okay. Yeah, as you'd expect if you've been a thousand okay. years conditioned by humans. When yeah. I did yeah. my um, one and only Deutschland tour, I landed in Frankfurt Airport one and a half hours before the race started. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. Did you make the start list? Yeah. Did you make the start? Uh, it's so close. Honestly, I ran to the bus, mm. it on numbers on start line. Literally, it, mm. that, that's all I had time for. <laughs> what year was that, Pete? Ned, I'm thinking, because obviously oh, at the end of the podcast, because yeah. that year was 2018, and I rode on the front that day mm. straight away with Elo Kaiser. 2018 Deutschland mm. Tour. Okay, stage one. Koblenz to Bonn. Yeah. Okay, Must you have got been to a Koblenz. Sprinter. Okay, and uh, Team Sky. Uh, no, you no got a year wrong Bora. Bora. Oh, Bora. Bora, you were with Bora then, by then. Okay, there you go. Peter Kenyuk. You were riding with Patrick Conrad, who we've talked about today. Pascal Ackerman. That's yeah. who we're li- okay. uh, working for, yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. And, in, and, and uh, that stage was won by... God, what's happened to him? Do you remember him? Alvaro, Alvaro Hodge, or Hodeg, oh, yeah. the Colombian sprinter from Quickstep. What's happened to him? That's a good point, isn't it? That's a good what? Point. Has something happened? So well, he's okay? he's contracted to UAE Should Team we Emirates. Into this? Oh, he's he's with UAE Team Emirates, guys. And he, uh, this hmm. year and last year, well, it's not terrible. Then if they're they're probably paying loads of money as well. No, but yeah, they're sending right. him to all the. <laughs> Oh, he's fine. <laughs> it's fine. As long as he's fine, that's all right. He just hasn't won a bike race. It's fine. Okay. It's he's won. Cool. He's won it's quite fine. a few bike races this year, actually. No, he has not. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. Seriously, but yeah, at a lower level, at a quite that's a low fine. level for that's him. That's also fine. Like, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah. so Ned, I was just going to say because there was um, at our last that's podcast, you did a little bit mindfulness at the end. Yeah, it'd be lovely for you to close this podcast off with some German mindfulness. About people okay. going to bed, and I can do that. I can do yeah. that if you want, right? So I'd love that. Okay, quite uh, long, uh, but you minutes so people can just literally just now prepare themselves. That prepare yourselves. Podcast. Prepare yourselves. I'm I'm at the moment. So I've been in Germany for a few days. I'm in Thuringen, which is an incredible part of Germany. It's where, um, it's where it's it's the former East Germany, but in a way, it's. It's kind of one of the oldest and most German parts of all of Germany. It doesn't have the same sort of international identity of Bavaria, certainly not the big status of Berlin, Cologne and Hamburg. Um, Thuringen is where, for example, Marcel Kittel comes from. It's where Tony Martin, his family originally came from before they fled to the West. And then for his education, he went back to the East. Um, I started off my last three or four days going back to Erfurt, which is one of the most perfectly, perfectly restored um, medieval city, medieval cities in all of Europe, 
I mean, it takes your breath away. There is a bridge in Erfurt, um, which has, you know, those old pictures of London Bridge, which have all those buildings clinging to Fog. the side, mm. either side. Yeah. So these medieval houses along a cobbled bridge, this literally exists. It doesn't exist in London. It exists in airports. You can see all this in airports. And then from airports, I went to... Yes, Pete. Is there <laughs> still the, the under-23 race, the Turrigan Runfort? I did that I think it I still exists. I think it still exists, Pete. And that's because... <laughs> That's because I think it does still exist, and you know and, that's and because. And a funny story of about that was the airport um, sports school. Sorry, Mo, I, uh, where was I at the time? Oh, it was when we were all in Italy, and I said to Cav, "I come home from Italy, from um, the race in Germany to Italy," and Cav goes, "Oh, what race are we just at?" And I said, "Run for." It. And he goes, <laughs> <laughs> "He goes, lad." He was like, <laughs> "You know that means like stayed race in Germany." <laughs> Something like something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I, 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 and then I was like, I, I don't know, like Torrigan or Torrigan run for. Like, <laughs> you just have no idea. That, do you? That's fine, um, Pete. Yeah. So that's that's my memories of where you're at now, and it was a lovely place actually, from what I've seen of it, and it's quite hilly, isn't it? Very, it's it, it's very hilly. So here's a here's a here's a little example, a little audio example. Now, this is me um, climbing up a cobbled climb on a hotel bike earlier <laughs> today. Right, this is an example of just how hilly it is. Two, two, two point five kilometers cobbled climb at ten percent. But um, on this bike. That, that that's not all that's sort of happened to me. Um, I've been have been on a journey of exploration. And David, you, you talk about the Weimarama um, breed of dog. You know, yeah. Weimar Weimar is also famous for it's the centre of German culture. It has been for hundreds of years. You know, this is where Johann Sebastian Bach lived and produced some of his greatest works. This is where Germany's two greatest poets and thinkers in the great age of German enlightenment that catapulted themselves to the forefront of German culture, Goethe and Schiller, they both come from here. This is the heart mm. of German thinking historically in Weimar and it's absolutely beautiful. So Weimar is just up the road from Erfurt. Weimar is where the Deutschland tour starts and the prologue weaves its way through the middle of, again, a, um, a beautiful city centre uh, in, in Weimar that is made up of the, you know, houses from the middle ages and um so just to sort of draw this to a close i come back to our first port of call which was in airports this year uh, where we we landed and i decided kath had actually booked the accommodation we stayed in a in a monastery and it wasn't just a monastery it was the monastery which martin luther um the great reformer who took on the might of the catholic church in um in the 16th century where he became a priest and he developed his theolo theological ideas that would turn European civilization on its head. All that happened in the monastery in which we stayed in Erfurt. And it was... Oh, I didn't know that. It was absolutely yeah, incredible. I didn't know. Yeah. That's crazy because I, 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 I think like many people, Martin Luther, we have also Martin Luther King in the States with the, the battles he fought. Yeah. We forget about the Protestant kind of kind of battle that the original Martin Luther did as well. Yeah, cool. That's very cool. Yeah. And and then in the morning, yeah. um after after that I decided I decided for 
reasons best known to myself that because I'm, I'm not religious that I'd go to church. <laughs> so I went, I went to so an open air church. I went to an open air church and it was, it was, it was, it was fairly amusing in the sense that the vicar at breakfast, because we were all staying in this monastery, came round, oh came round to all of us at our tables and said, in German, he said, he said, hello, I'm, I'm the, I'm the vicar of the monastery. I'm going to, I just, so you know, that, the, the, the church service is starting at and I went I know half past nine and he said are you in town is the reason you're in town because you're a big fan of Roland Kaiser and I went no but I knew why he <laughs> meant I knew why he meant that I knew why he'd asked that question because the night before the night before we'd all gone to the centre of Erfurt where this massive German German Schlager star singing this traditional German folk rock had put on this and there were 10,000 people there singing along to this um, massive open air concert so so we'd gone along to that and really literally quite enjoyed ourselves um, and here's a little audio taste of what that sounded like then anyway so I'm having breakfast with the vicar and he says he says church service starts at 9.30 and part of me is thinking I don't need to go to that I don't need to go to that and the other part of me is thinking what is it about hmm. Jerva curious what is it about this place what is it about the significance of this this place in particular that shaped the way that 500 years of European history have gone. It's 500 years since Luther translated the Bible from Latin into German and made it accessible to the yeah, masses. Which, and took which on was the, a sin. And, uh, absolutely. It resulted in him sin. being excommunicated yeah. and outlawed by the Holy Roman Empire. And it kicked off, so, you know, bloody war after bloody war after bloody war. And Luther himself is, a, is, is, is both an inspiring and incredibly controversial figure because of his views that later came to light on anti-Semitic views as well, which, were, which need to be challenged. But his importance yeah, hugely. is incredibly... Um, you know, sort of can't be ignored. So I went... So I went anyway... Listen, this was supposed to be sending you all to sleep. So this will send you to sleep, I promise, right? I sat in the Rose Garden. We had an open-air service. And I listened, uh, first of all, to the people around me. Um, well, no, actually, before that even happened, the vicar got up and he said, we'd like to welcome you all. And I noticed we have a few guests <laughs> with us who are not from Erfurt. Is anybody here not, this is all in German, obviously, not from Erfurt? And of course, I looked at my shoes. I thought, I can't possibly. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna admit to that. Please, someone else put their hands up. So someone put his hands up, his hand up. And German guy said, "I'm from Oldenburg, which is the north of Germany." I went, "Okay, I've got away with that." But he knew that I was, I was sitting in kind of Rosette, and he went, "Anyone else here? <laughs> not from Airfort?" <laughs> and I just kept, I, just, I kept absolutely quiet like that. But anyway. Then, then all the hymns started. I listened, I listened to the sermon. I thought the sermon was incredibly interesting. It was about how um, every character in the Bible is actually a, a, a human character full of failure, from Moses through to St. Paul and St. Peter. They're all, they're all um, examples of failure. They're on only the human. Scale. Yeah. They're, they're only, only human. human, exactly. That was, his that was his point. And at the end, it all ended... Uh, with the Lord's Prayer in German. And I shall um, perhaps just sign off 
this rather unusual ending to a podcast by leaving you all um, with the sound of the congregation of the Augustina Kloster in Erfurt and uh, the sound of them um, reciting the Lord's Prayer in the open air. Thank <laughs> you.